When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Green light 3-0 and she's gone! Welcome to The 3-0 Show. It is Thursday, January 11th. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, Katie Wu in for Brit Drooley. Be sure to like this video if you're watching us on YouTube. Leave us a nice rating and review if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that lets you leave a rating and review. And even just, just write a review on a bathroom stall if you have to. Just five stars. The Athletic Baseball <laughs> Show. We'd really appreciate it if you did that. Uh, on today's episode, we dig into a lot of NL Central topics, and we'll see if we get to Hall of Fame ballots. I think we have this sort of uh, this joy that comes out when when Katie joins the show. I get to nerd out more than usual about the NL Central, and it makes it really hard for me to plan the number of topics that we can actually get to because I'm allowed to talk about the Brewers when we talk about the NL Central. And the Joey, for a, for a thing where you're like lifting up a player and, and putting him in the Hall of Fame, joy is not a word I actually associate with Hall of Fame voting anymore. <laughs> is, so before we get into anything else, is Hall of Fame voting the kind of thing that you want until you have it, and then when you have it, you regret ever wanting it? Is that what it is? Because my guess is Katie doesn't have a vote yet. Mm-mm, and Katie I want probably one. wants a Hall of I Fame do. vote. <laughs> Eno waited and has it, and I now he's stressed out hard. about it. And it's kind of like, I like doing this, but this is kind of awful, too. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I wanted one was to vote for Barry Bonds, and they changed the rules so that you know I couldn't vote for Barry Bonds. I was, I was going to be eligible in time, and then they made it 10 years instead of 15. Um, but no, uh, I think it's just, it's funny. People are like, they accuse people of like, oh, you voted this way for engagement. You voted this way to like get clicks on your article or, you know, you're, you're like, you voted this way for ulterior motives. This year, I quietly revealed my ballot in a group reveal on the athletic. I never tweeted it from my Twitter account. I don't want that engagement (laughs) i don't want any of that smoke i don't know like it's just it's too much people are so so into it and so sure of their opinions and it's just becomes a yelling space and i don't i don't really i haven't had a lot of like you know, when I say like, oh, I think this pitcher is the 35th ranked pitcher and somebody comes to me like, oh, no, he should be like 60th. Sometimes we have an interesting conversation. We're like, what about his homers? What about this? What about his park? And I'm like, ooh, you know, like maybe I didn't value that enough. When we yell about Hall of Famers, it's just like it's all smell test. It's just like I you know there's no way Bobby Bray is a, a, a Hall of Famer. And there's a lot of batting average gets brought up. And I'm just like. Oh, it's not my most important thing, batting average. So, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't enjoy the discourse. Okay, you're selling so, this for me. You know, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> looking forward <laughs> to it in like really six excited. more years. <laughs> I, I did feel some joy about voting for Scott Rowland and putting him in the Hall of Fame because I felt he deserved it. 
and it took him some time and uh like i'm sure it was a, a momentous day for him you know so like i did feel some joy attached to that but i also for all that joy got a lot of yelling at about how scott Rowland wasn't a hall of famer so it's like you know you joy win. for him <laughs> smoke for me <laughs> you know what you got to the hall of fame stuff because you know flip the rundown upside down which is Sorry. incredible <laughs> but you, you wrote about it in in the ballot reveal and in part of what you believe is that you want to be at least as inclusive as the hall was in, in previous generations and and philosophically i'm with you i think players today are as talented as they've ever been like like doesn't it seem weird that it would get harder to get into the hall of fame like when you have a better collection of talent historically speaking today I, I think the other way to say this is it seems like people always overrate the past the, like the, the guys that played previously they they're just so much better than the guys that played now no they're not mm -hmm. we actually know they're not we can measure this in several different ways and i feel like that's part of why the discourse is so terrible right there's like this generational divide and and you're you're picking at people's nostalgia and you shouldn't do that because no good comes from that. People get really upset when you tell them something wasn't as good as they thought it was. Yeah. Katie, did you have a, a, an opinion on Bobby Bray for the Hall of Fame? I do not. Okay. I do not. And I'm scared to even now. I don't even want to like say an opinion because <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Who knows what I'm opening myself up to? I, I have enough already. I don't need this one. Yeah, so well, take it away, you know. I mean, I just think Bobby Bray is just a fascinating case because uh, he wasn't top five in any one season by most metrics. And so people are like, he wasn't he wasn't an MVP. He wasn't a he's not a Hall of Famer. But if you look at a seven year period uh, to begin his career, he was top five. Like if you just look at a full because he posted every year, he was like top 10, top 12 every year for seven years. And, you know, could you have a Hall of Fame accumulator? Like, you know, like yeah. Hall of Fame poster, a guy who's just like really good every year. Like, doesn't that at some point become a Hall of Famer? Um, you know, and, and so he's at the at the he's at the crux for me where if you think Bobby Bray is a Hall of Famer, then you're you're a big Hall guy. And if you think, you know, only one guy should be a Hall of Famer, then you're a small Hall guy. But if you just look at the percentage of people that were voting in, we voted in like 3% of the people that that uh, played from like 1900 to 1930 or something. And we voted in 1% of the players that vote that uh, played from 1970 on. Um, and so why is that? And I think that's kind of speaks to what you're talking about. Then yeah, people just like remember things differently based on what they who they were a fan of. Like if you certain fan bases hated Gary Sheffield and not only like sometimes it was fan bases of the teams he played for. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I bet you like Brewers fans, like I wouldn't be surprised if Brewers fans were like Gary Sheffield's not a Hall of Fame. What are you talking about? Brewers fans do not have fond memories of Gary Sheffield and <laughs> Gary Sheffield made some comments about playing in Milwaukee that probably didn't help the cause. And perhaps with <laughs> a few more years uh, on him, he would reflect on that time differently than he did back in the nineties when he was talking the most about it. But I don't know. Like I, I think it's funny when certain fan bases hate players, not in an actual hatred sort of way, but when they just openly, openly like boo a player for, being there right and the worst one the weirdest one that i can ever remember was chipper jones getting booed at county stadium milwaukee and i couldn't figure out 
I, I was probably he got booed in a lot of places though. He got really booed and he, he named his kid Shay, right? Right. I I think I was 13, 14 years old, so I don't know. I, I must have missed comments. Chipper Jones must have said something about Milwaukee at some point, but he gets the loudest boos or used to get the loudest boos in Milwaukee for a player that wasn't in division. It was just so strange. So yeah, yeah. you have these sort of like random bitter feuds between city and player. Yeah. Anyway. And then there's like the statistical things like Jimmy Rollins. If you look at his stats today, they'd be pretty good. But the he played during a time when offense was like at a peak. So he was actually a below average bat, which is like to explain like saying that to somebody like who loved Jimmy Rollins is like they're like, you're not speaking the same language to them. They're like, what? Like he was a stud. And you're like, he had a 95 WRC plus. He had a below average OPS. Like, I don't know what to tell you. If you have a below average OPS, it's hard for me to make you a Hall of Famer. Like, I struggled with Rollins because as a kid, I remember thinking this guy's a Hall of Fame stud, you know. But now looking back at the numbers, I'm just like, I don't know, man. He had a below average bat and he wasn't like Omar Vizquel with the glove or anything. So he wasn't yeah. Ozzy Smith with the glove. So I, I'm not voting him in for the glove. So yeah, I don't, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one for me. Um, but I will get some joy in taking part in somebody getting elected this year. So that's that, that part's cool. Yeah. It looks like Adrian Beltre deservedly is going to get in easily. And Joe Maurer, I think with the, the tracking that's been going on, looks like he might get in as well. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago and I think the case for Maurer makes a lot of sense. I think, Dan Barbarisi had a, a blurb about Maurer in the ballot reveal piece, basically saying it's it's hard, it's hard to forecast what would have happened with health, but you still have to try and account for it anyway, right? Concussions moved Maurer out from behind the plate. If he'd been able to catch longer, he could have put together a defensive resume that holds up much more closely to that of Yadi or Molina, who kind of wins this longevity battle, right? Like Yadi someday, Katie, I feel like is going to be someone that people get really loud about as a Hall of Fame candidate. Absolutely. I have been saying that since my first year on the Cardinals beat because the discourse was already starting then and he hadn't even retired yet or announced that he was going to. He still played another season and they were t- and the discourse was, is Yadier Molina a Hall of Famer? Um, and I, I believe my math is not the greatest that I will have hopefully qualified, done my eligibility to vote by then. Uh, but it will be very interesting. And now I'm maybe walking back how excited I am for <laughs> eventually voting for the Hall of Fame because that one should be fun. It is a there, lot. There used to be, you know, they didn't used to have framing in uh, war, and so there was a lot of people who were like, "He's not a Hall of Famer." Uh, and then they put framing in war, and I was like, "Oh, he is." <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> yeah, it's like some so some level. I wonder, like, is there something with Jimmy Rollins that I'm missing? Because there are people who are almost as adamant about Rollins as they are about Molina. Like, uh, maybe there's something I'm missing that. You know, maybe I should keep my mind open to that. But um, I was always like, if everyone says that Yadi's a Hall of Famer, especially the people that see him a lot, and uh, he's a catcher, and we know that we can't get all the numbers exactly right for catching, like game calling. Mm-hmm. There's no number for game calling. And it seems like Yadi is really good at that. And, you know, we had a little bit of an on, like on off with wilson Contreras this year so you know it like you know i it's hard to be like oh that's all wilson's problem we talked about this we almost wrote about it but um <clears throat> at the same time it was like yeah they're missing they're missing yachty you know <laughs> it's hard to walk that line we're like it's not all wilson's fault but they're missing yachty hall of fame catcher 
that goes a long way towards uh, maximizing the value of that pitching staff. We're going to get some more Cardinal stuff here in just a few minutes. Uh, the big news from the free agent world, Shoto Imanaga is headed to the Cubs, and it's a complicated deal. Four and 53 is sort of like the baseline numbers that you're seeing out there in terms of years and dollars. There's an option for a fifth year. Uh, if the Cubs don't extend the contract, he could become a free agent after 2025 or 2026. Total value could be $80 million. And, you know, we had a chance to talk about Imanaga a little bit yesterday on rates and barrels. And uh, the one thing that you, you brought up was his fastball ride is excellent, but it comes from a really low release point. So, when you start to look at Imanaga and, and try to figure out like what he's going to do against big league hitters, what in the arsenal with the fastball works right away, and and what kind of results do you think we're going to see from him in year one as he makes this move to the Cubs? Yeah, I, you know, I think that the the fastball, the splitter, and the sweeper are good. Um, and you know, I wonder, I just wonder, sweepers sometimes are like a a bad pitch to throw uh, to opposite handed hitters. So like, we'll have to see how the sweeper does against righties uh, from the, from the lefty, but he still has the splitter. So it's at least the three pitch mix. I'm, I think the Cubs will have to look into what the fourth pitch will be. Cause I don't think the, that's obvious yet. Um, and so there's, there's still some work that it's weird to get a guy who's 30 uh, who's had really good results in Japan to, and still say, well, maybe there's still a little bit of work to do. Uh, but it comes from a good foundation. He struck out more batters uh, as a percentage than uh, Yamamoto did last year in Japan. Uh, so there's a lot of strikeouts in there. The question is homers. And so some of the comps are uh, Christian Javier and Nestor Cortez and Joe Ryan, guys who you know have good fastballs but have given up uh, some homers. Um, but uh, the upside is for beyond that. And uh, not to just like make this go back to the Cardinals uh, again, but I uh, we're looking at like a kind of a fifteen uh, million dollars per year average annual uh, value for Imanaga on these and um, Imanaga and like what do the Cardinals do? They got Lynn and who is the other guy that they got on a one year deal? Kyle Gibson, Kyle Gibson for thirteen, I think, and Lynn for fourteen or something. They're both around the for same. eleven. 11. Okay. So it didn't quite get to 15, but you know, I just wonder if, you know, looking at this team, do you think, do you think uh, maybe Katie that they thought we just need stop gaps because we really like Takoa Roby and we like some of the guys that are coming through the system. Do you think they just didn't want to, you know, have the multi-year thing? You know, what do you think the thought process is about getting somebody like Lance Lynn for one year instead of getting somebody that might have uh, more upside uh, for, I mean, potentially only two or three years? It's not it's not a huge difference. We're not talking Yamamoto versus Lance Lynn. We're mm -hmm. talking, you know, a million or two dollars. What do you what do you think the thought process was there? I think it's a little bit twofold. We knew the Cardinals coming into 2024 needed innings direly. They only had two starters penciled in the rotation. So they needed innings and they needed veteran durability and leadership. That clubhouse, with the exception of Adam Wainwright last year, kind of got off the tracks because there were so many young pitchers in the rotation. Obviously, that's what happens when you sell. It makes sense for these young guys to come in. But the Cardinals really wanted experience. So that's why they kind of targeted Lynn and Gibson, because when you look at their track records, they have a, a reputation, a rapport of coming in and posting innings. 
Now, you can argue over the last year if those innings were of quality or not, but the Cardinals do believe that they found something in Gibson and they really like his leadership and they have familiar, you know, they're familiar with Lancelin dating back to when he was a rookie in their system. So finding innings was their number one target because what's the point in going out and getting Sonny Gray, which I think is a fantastic deal for them, if you have nothing to supplement Gray with? So mm-hmm. they went out and they got two for one year. And I, I think the reason they only stuck to a one-year deal is because partly the Valley sports situation has so mm-hmm. much uncertainty for 2020, I mean, this year for sure, and 2025 that the Cardinals, who rely so heavily on revenue sharing and their RSNs, can't make a super strong financial commitment for 2025. And I know fans are going to roll their eyes because they're a very profitable team. I mean, top three in attendance almost every year. But that revenue sharing, that regional sports network, everything with Valley is so complicated and so instrumental in their finances. And I think that's why they're maybe shying away from the multi-year deals, except for Gray, in which that case they obviously had to. Ten other teams, I think, in in a similar boat right now, too. But also, like, put up against the Cubs, like the Cubs own their own network. Yeah. And and had had sort of maybe prepared for this or, or or at least, you know, already spent some time, you know, in austerity to to kind of set up this network and maybe we're in a different place. So, well, I, I think that's what's so interesting about these two teams right now. Right. When you start to look into the reports about what the Cubs are likely to do next, you see several prominent free agents linked to them. Still, you see a possible reunion with Cody Bellinger. You see Matt Chapman and Reese Hoskins, and it's possible they would get all three. It's probably not likely that they would land all three, but it seems like there is a greater appetite for spending right now in Chicago than there is in St. Louis, even though as things stand today, per Cots, they're very close to each other. The Cardinals, I believe, in ten, are 10th right now in projected payroll. The Cubs are sitting there at 11th, and that's got a clear up arrow next to it for the reasons that, that Eno and Katie just outlined. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. 
I wonder as you look at the the changes the Cardinals have made, though, is like, are they actually better? Like, is is are there tr- is that a true upgrade when you think about Gray and Lynn and and even the additions in the bullpen too? Gibson for the innings, I think that's really important. Andrew Kittredge, I think, is a really nice get so long as he's actually healthy. That's the kind of the key for him. And then Nick Robertson came over from the the Tyler O'Neill trade. As someone who watches this team every day, like Katie, do you think the Cardinals have improved at all, a little, a lot, based on what they've done so far? I definitely think they're a better team with Gray because they they really lacked a number. I don't want to just, when I say number one, I want to preface, there's a difference between an ace and a number one. And I think Sonny Gray can be their number one. Um, I also think that they needed the innings. Now, again, it goes back to quality of innings. The Cardinals certainly feel confident, um, but you were already questioning if they have enough depth. Steven Matz hasn't had a healthy season since coming over to St. Louis. Miles Michaelis should not have a year like he did in 2023. He should be better, but there's no guaranteeing. And the bullpen to me is the biggest question. I think it's a very high upside bullpen, but with the exception of Giovanni Gallegos, there is not a lot of stability there. You're banking a lot on the ceilings of these guys and the upside. And, you know, like if you look at Kittredge, health permitting should be a, a pretty good component in that bullpen. Brian Helsley, health permitting is a lights out closer, but there's so many question marks throughout the list of the bullpen that I do think the Cardinals are better. I do think Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, Lars Nupar will be better. Um, is it enough to satisfy fans or convince outsiders that this is a legitimate playoff team? Probably not. Are they going to contend for the division? Yes, but look at the NL Central. It's not exactly the most competitive division in the world. So when I say the Cardinals have gotten better, I do think that. Do I think that they are a you know top eight team in the league? No. Oh, that's it's interesting. interesting. War has them as seventh. Yeah. It, oh, it's, wow. But, but the Me, problem, the pessimist. <laughs> I don't think you're being a pessimist. It was though, a bad year I, last year. I think what you're getting to is that the big moves are probably over, at least the increases yes. in payroll. Like if there's something that's sort of cash neutral they can do via trade, then sure, they could get better and get an upgrade somewhere that way. But other teams are still going to get some of those names that I mentioned and the others that are still available and pass the Cardinals on that war chart, right? So they're I, like I in a good spot you. now. There's a lot of free agents still out there, but uh, I just want to list the teams that are behind them because I, I hear you and agree with you, sort of. But <laughs> then I actually looked at the teams behind and was like, well, the Twins are behind them and they're crying poor. In fact, on some level, Max Kepler is due to maybe leave town. Uh, the Rays are next. The Mariners are acting like they have no money to spend. The Mets are are there. They're kind of, uh, I think most of the decisions they're making are, are kind of seem like treading water for next year. And then you've got the Orioles. The Orioles are three wins behind the Cardinals. I, I could see them getting Dylan Cease and, you know, maybe signing a pitcher or something. So I think they're a little bit dangerous there. Um, but the Rangers and D-backs, the Rangers are, are in deep in this Bally's uh, problem, um, and the D-backs are as well. So I don't, and they also have you know four four-ish wins to kind of uh, to get on the Cardinals. So I think the Cardinals, at the very least, will be a top ten team coming into the season. I think that might surprise people. Signings like Lynn and uh, Gibson are really not sexy, but they bring up the floor. 
Um, and I think that mostly uh, the lineup kind of underperformed last year. And uh, I think that, you know, maybe it's folly to uh, predict that uh, Arenado is going to return to form and Goldschmidt is going to return to form. But you see Paul Goldschmidt going to driveline and like, you know, working on bat speed training. Arnado had some health issues, right? Did he have some He had a pretty bulky back coming, like finishing the year. They ended on the injured list uh, on the season for, and it was only the third time in his career that he's been on the injured list. That dude, like when he is hurt, um, he's still playing. So it was obviously a big, a big deal. But so far, you know, talking to Nolan so far, so good. So, I mean, I think when you're looking at the Cardinals offseason in a whole, I think they've had a successful offseason in terms of addressing what they needed to do. They needed innings. They needed a top of the rotation pitcher. They needed some bullpen help. They just did it in uh, the Cardinal way of not being cheap because this is, they did not have it. They were not cheap this offseason. They're so far one of the top spenders. They did it conservatively. And yeah, they, did, uh, they didn't send $300 million to Yashinomi Yamamoto. Right. They didn't, you know, you know, they're, they're not over here throwing dollars. Uh, 700 million at Otani. <laughs> exactly. But I think they addressed what they needed to do. And, and I'm also talking about the subtractions they made. They alleviated, they alleviated that uh, outfield log jam, sending out Tyler O'Neill, trading Richie Palacios and getting an arm like Andrew Kittredge, again, health permitting, could be, I think, one of the more underrated moves of the offseason because Palacios wasn't going to play in the majors. He wasn't going to start. He was going to start in the minor leagues. Mo is on the record in saying that. Um, and you also look at, and I'm sure we'll get to this because I see it in the rundown, they also brought in a new voice in their uh, front office. And for an organization that is very used to the same kind of internal churn, I think that was also important for them to do. So I do like the offseason. I don't think it's enough for them to be like true forces, you know, like no one's going to be the Dodgers. But when you look at the true like NL powerhouses like Atlanta and Philadelphia, I don't see the Cardinals necessarily in that tier, but I do think that they've addressed what they needed to do. Certainly fans would like one more starting pitcher, but you know, fever dream. Um, but I, I would give them, you know, for the amount of work they had to do after such an embarrassing season, I do think they've checked the minimum of what they needed to do. I would also add too. I mean, Mason win a full season of him at shortstop. There's always a possibility that he takes a pretty big step in his first full season with the cards. I think Nolan Gorman still has another level that he can reach at the plate. That could be huge for them. I was, I, I was really, really impressed with Victor Scott. In, yes. In they Arizona. love them. Some Victor Scott out in St. Louis. Yeah. And, Victor Scott is a burner too. He's going to be fun to watch. And mm-hmm. Takoa Roby is actually one of my favorite uh, pitching prospects. Um, you know, the pet strikeout rates are really, really impressive. He's knocking on the door. He's already at double a, um, I think he could surpass, you know, the Zach Thompson, Matthew Libertor types, uh, by mid season and, uh, maybe be kind of, uh, the surprise, you know, game three starter, you know, in a, in a, in a series, um, you know, especially given the makeup of this rotation. So, um, you know, I think there's definitely some things to be excited about. Uh, underneath the 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 sort of I, I even like Guillermo Zuniga. So <laughs> I know this is what I'm talking about with a high upside bullpen. We just yeah. it's relatively unproven, right? High upside, unproven, and that's just kind of scary to me. Um, but I guess relief pitching is always kind of like that anyway. So maybe I'm making this a bigger deal than it than it needs to be. 
Thomas Segezi. Yeah. Is that how you say his name? Yeah. They like him too. He's one of those like Swiss army knives that they, they have them in Brendan, Brendan Donovan, Tommy Edmonds, mm-hmm. Segezi. They, the Cardinals love those kinds of versatile can play any position. There's something healthy in, in St. Louis still. People like really want to focus on the negative, I think, but like they keep they turning do. out position players. Like they keep, they, they have a, I think they have a good blend of scouting. And like when we talked to Victor Scott at their Arizona fall league, he said that like they gave him very specific things they wanted to see on his blast motion. So mm-hmm. they gave him a bat tracker and they gave him the off season and he based, and they said, we want to see these launch angles and these exit velocities and these things and like, go work on that. And I like that. I like hearing very specific feedback and I like hearing that they weren't just like, Oh, you're fast, hit the ball on the ground and run. No, they were like, you're going to be better if you can hit 15 homers. Because the Cardinals before, I think that would have been a very Cardinal thing to say. Yeah. So, and I, I think the reason why the there's so much negativity around the team is, well, one, when you have a season like that, negativity is going to come. But, and this is going to sound uh, like pretentious to the fan base, but Cardinals fans aren't used to losing in that degree. Right. I mean, they hadn't they're had a 90 storied franchises. They are. Baseball. They don't. They and when the they most, lose, I think they they're might like, have the, the most wins all time or one of the top three wins of all time. Them and the Yankees. Right. So yeah. when you lose 90 games for the first time since 1990 and you were supposed to be a playoff team. So it wasn't just like, oh, they might be good. It was they were supposed to be good. They were very not. Um, I think yeah. you just kind of don't know how to react to that. And a lot of these fans witnessed losing and wasn't just like under 500 losing. It was, it was. straight up terrible, awful baseball for the right. first time in their fandom. And and I think they haven't yet come accustomed to that. Um, but yeah, definitely a lot of negativity around the team. And, and I get it. it. After a year like that, it shouldn't be all happy, positive optimism. You know, John Mosellock and the Cardinals, Ollie Marmel have to go out and prove that they're good. But I, I can certainly understand why Cardinals fans have the reactions that they do just because, you know, this is not something that they're used to. Yeah, doing some uh, pre-show research, I didn't realize that Mosellock started with the Cardinals as an assistant GM back in 95. So that's even thir- 30 years now with the club is what he's into, which is just remarkable. So and- that so the reading between the lines, this is his worst season. This is his worst season, right? When I said we don't know how to do losing in St. Louis, I wasn't yeah. just talking about the fans. Yeah. yeah it, it, well, I, I think it it's you have to be encouraged if you're a Cardinals fan and you see Chaim Bloom join the Cardinals in an advisory role. And if you if you pull back a little further and think about how excited everybody was about Chaim Bloom when he went to Boston and he was a rising star in that Rays organization in their front office. I think the constraints that ownership put on him in Boston made his tenure there less successful than it would have been otherwise. Um, obviously he had a lot of control, a lot of sway over decisions overall. And there are things he did that didn't work out, but I think it's really, it's really an encouraging sign for this organization to say, you know, the Cardinal way, which I, from the outside is just the cheesiest thing in baseball <laughs> to have someone from a different organization come in and bring a fresh perspective that seems like a pretty good level of awareness from Mosellock to say, you know, we might have some things we could be doing better. Let's get some eyes in here that are from an organization that does things a lot differently in Tampa Bay. One that's kind of picked our pocket via trade on a few occasions, especially. So how do you see Heim Bloom kind of fitting in to this front office, Kate? I know you wrote about it a little bit earlier in the week because I'm just really intrigued by this sort of old leadership bringing in some some new vision in this role. 
Yeah, and I, I think the fresh perspective was key. I mean, Mo talked about it dating back to the winter meetings when when you look at how long Mo and Bill DeWitt Jr., the Cardinals owner, have been together, it has been almost 30 years. And the Cardinals, again, not saying this in a negative way, just a factual way, like to promote within. And that's not a bad thing. But there's always that internal churn, again, in the organization. And they don't often bring in new voices to their front office. So to go out and get Heim Bloom, who most had a pretty extensive relationship for a long time now, and you bring in someone who really made a career out of himself in player development, an area the Cardinals could be a little bit better in, um, even though it's a part-time role, even though it's an advisory role, I still think it was, again, a great level of awareness from Mo to say, you know what, We've, we're clearly doing something wrong here. You don't accidentally lose 91 games. So let's bring in a, a fresh voice. Let's modernize our front office a little bit. And, you know, that's not to to pick on any of the other GMs or assistant general managers, you know, Mike Gersh has been there a long time. I think Randy Flores has done a great job in, in the scouting department, but bringing in a new voice, especially one that is so respected in the baseball industry, I thought was a good level of awareness for the Cardinals. And then clearly it was, I mean, when you look at the Cardinals and what they've done in some of their relief pitching acquisitions, I mean, Andrew Kittredge, we talked about him. Well, Heim Bloom traded for him in Tampa. And the Cardinals had two Boston relievers come over uh, and Nick Robertson and then Ryan Fernandez in the Rule 5 draft. And where was Heimblum most recently in? Uh, Boston. So it makes sense that there's kind of those little intricate connections there. I think we'll see more on the player development side than anything. Although Mo did say earlier in the week that Bloom's role is not necessarily undefined, but it is very fluid. Hmm. The other thing that's interesting, too, is I think when I look back at Rays teams from the last decade or so, pitching in spades seems to be a common thread there, right? And in player development, Eno was just talking about how the Cardinals, even in this recent little stretch of turbulence, still are generating high-quality position players. I wonder if the the organizational philosophy towards pitching, and specifically finding guys who miss more bats, if that's something that, that Bloom has been brought in to help fix as well. Because I, I think that's where the organization looks like it has lagged behind some of the other top end organizations in baseball in recent years. I hope so. Cause if, if I have to see one more ground ball that gets through two infielders and the, expl the explanation after the game is a uh, few feet to the left, it's a double play. I'm going to lose it <laughs> because it wasn't a few feet to the left and it was not a double play. It was an RBI single. Um, and I think that they're, they're, they're spot on. I do think that's something that they want to address. I remember Mo talking about the need to implement that from a player development staff during the trade deadline. So this is clearly something that's been on their minds. And when you look at who they've been targeting, um, it doesn't always fit that mold in terms of trying to find swing and miss. But, you know, Andrew Kittredge has a high chase rate. Uh, you're looking at, at guys like Sonny Gray. I'm, I'm pretty sure Sonny Gray's sweeper was, you know, his best pitch in that category. So... They're they're doing it both with their acquisitions and now with their player development side. And I think this Heim Bloom hire is more important than a lot of people realize. Yeah, I made a joke about Lynn and Gibson not striking out a bunch of guys. But um, to be fair to the Cardinals, the guys they're replacing uh, struck out even fewer. Uh, so yes. to get to average is uh, is is fine too. <laughs> you know, some the you know sometimes you getting to average is improvement. Also, if you look at the the prospects they traded for, like Roby, uh, but also Drew Rom, who doesn't throw super hard, and I don't know if it'll work out. I'm not saying they're all going to work out, but if you look at the prospects they got. They all miss bats. They all had high swing and uh, swinging strike rates. They all had high strikeout rates. And then, you know, lastly about Chaim Bloom, 
that's interesting. I just I think that he wasn't given enough time in Boston. Honestly, like if you look at there was a lot of hires he made. He made some interesting hires on the hitting and pitching side. Um, you know, I had heard something about uh, there maybe being too many cooks in the kitchen that maybe he was uh, he, he got in there and hired too many people. Uh, and it would have maybe just over time, if there are too many cooks in the kitchen, that sort of that sort of figures itself out over time. Maybe somebody goes and gets a new opportunity somewhere else. Maybe someone comes to the top and becomes leadership and everyone you know sort of falls in line behind them. But that's the sort of thing that sometimes takes time to figure out. It's organizational sort of depth chart and management uh, that needs to be figured out. He still was uh, like, I still hear from my contacts that he's good at identifying t- uh, talent when it comes to pitching coaches, pitching, you know, directors, what we should do in a pitching program. So my guess is he is going to be, uh, you know, it's not his title, but like basically like AGM of, of pitching, <laughs> you know, like he, that's going to be the sort of uh, the, the place he kind of gravitates towards. And maybe he'll have learned some, some stuff from, uh, uh, what he, he had in uh, what the time he had in Boston. And then lastly, uh, you know, in that role, he's not going to have the same scrutiny. Boston is also getting a bad name for this in terms of like, you have three years, you know, mm-hmm. whereas I feel like St. Louis, he's not the GM. He's not the, you know, the, the, the figurehead. And St. Louis seems to be like, we'll, we'll give you some time here. <laughs> you know? Like we don't think this is going to happen in year one. So, I think that they're doing all the right things uh, in terms of addressing their biggest problem. If you look back, I think that they took a really big leap forward when they hired Jeff Albert um, as a hitting coach hitting. I don't even know what they hired him as originally, but he ended up being the guy who revamped their entire hitting process in the minor leagues. And I think he's a, a really, he's gone now, but I think he's a really big part of why Victor Scott has specific things he's supposed to look for on his blast motion. You know, I think he's a big part of why Nolan Gorman turns out, you know, in a, in a good way. So uh, they have really good scouting. They've always had really good scouting and uh, their hitting development is good. And I think they're now turning their attention to pitching development. So wouldn't be uh, surprised if, if that starts to get better in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's that's a super good point. And I think spot on because what Jeff Albert was implementing at the major league level during his time, which was a, a bit controversial, they were in, implementing that same process in the minor leagues. So you're seeing these guys come up like Newt Barr, like Donovan, like Gorman, Walker. And that's the same process that was being implemented. And that's kind of what the Cardinals want to do now with their pitching coach, Dusty Blake. They were really high on him coming in. Obviously, 2023, bad year to be a first-year pitching coach. Um, But I think when you're looking at the things that Dusty wants to implement, that really mirrors a lot of what Albert on the hitting, Jeff Albert on the hitting side wanted to implement as well. So again, bad first year, but we also have to keep in mind that a lot of those pitchers, especially in the second half, weren't exactly major league caliber. So I'm interested to see what the Cardinals do from a pitching side, both in player development and from their pitching coach, their pitching coaches, the uh, strategists, just because I do think in a couple of years, we'll hopefully see a different style of pitching within the organization. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
Let's talk about the Cubs a bit more. I mean, we talked about Yamanaga going there at the beginning of the episode. They'd be among the teams that are further behind the Cardinals in that war projection that because the number of additions they could make could actually leap up and at least have a very comparable projection by the time the, the dust settles on this offseason. I look at this lineup as it's built right now, and it doesn't do a whole lot for me, right? You've got Seiya Suzuki and Ian Happ as the clear like two best projected offensive players right now. Christopher Morrell is a fun watch. He doesn't really have a good position defensively. They don't necessarily have a DH locked in. Maybe that's ultimately his role. I can't believe Matt Mervis is actually projected to be their fourth best hitter, and there's a lot of questions as to whether or not he's actually going to hit enough against big league pitching. And you got Dansby Swanson and Nico Horner also above league average, along with Mike Talkman, who might be more of like a big side platoon player. So there are some holes here. The good news is Pete Crow Armstrong looks like he's close to major league ready or major league ready, at least defensively. He's always been phenomenal in center field. They could plug him in and let him figure some things out. They've got prospects to move. They want to go to the trade front. They've got a young catcher in Miguel Amaya. They could play a little bit more this year. So there are things that are going in the right direction. But do you look at this roster and say, yes, throw money at the problem right now and continue to supplement with the young talent? Is the window open wide enough right now to be really aggressive? Or does this sort of slow approach into the offseason, like prior, prior to this addition of Imanaga, it was the Craig Council move at the beginning of the offseason. That was it. That's all the Cubs had really done up to this week. Yeah, you know, I'm going to go back to the NL Central being the, the powerhouse that it is. Um, yeah, throw money at the team because it's anyone's division, right? Like yeah, you're going to, I point. think when you're looking at it, the Cardinals and the Reds, I think the Reds, have, they're maybe one top uh, starting rotation piece away from being a serious contender, but the Reds have a ton of talent. I think the Cardinals and the Reds are going to headline this this uh, division, but not by a lot. It's certainly, you know, Pirates are the Pirates, and I can't imagine anyone's really happy about what's going on in Milwaukee right now. But for I, I don't think anyone can go out there and claim who who's the division favorite. And the Cubs can, I think, put themselves in a position to do that by throwing money at this roster. And you don't need a Dodgers style roster to compete in the NL Central. You don't. You don't even need half of that. So I think that they have an opportunity to go into a time where the division is relatively unclaimed. That's not usually like that. You can usually pencil in the Cardinals uh, as a competitive team. You can still do that this year, but I don't think it holds the same weight. So in a division that is known for being rather frugal and not being the most competitive out there, I think you try and go for it. Yeah. For me, the, 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 the struggle is do we, are they like a star away or should they spread it around? And my argument for spreading it around is, um, you know, right now there, you, you were talking about, uh, about Matt Mervis, uh, their bottom five, I believe in projected, uh, production at first base. Yeah. Um, and then they're barely league average at third, um, and, and, and that's with Nick Madrigal, who I'm not a hundred percent convinced he's an everyday major leaguer. Um, you're talking about bottom shelf power, uh, pretty poor base running. Um, it's all defense and contact that profiles to me, like a great utility infielder, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, could you get somewhere with, just and, and then the their relief squad, while it's okay, it would do better if it had a name in it, you know, uh, just another another name in it. And so I wonder, like, are, are you weighing 
Should we just get re-rack it with Cody Ballinger, who might be really expensive? Or should we do Justin Turner plus Brandon Belt plus Robert Stevenson? Or maybe they can even do better. Maybe Jordan uh, Jordan Hicks, you know? And, um, you know, add in a lot of places. Because I I kind of feel like that might be might be a good idea. And it's not exciting. I understand. But it 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 addresses their problems in a lot of places. And yeah, Brand Belt's gonna get hurt probably at some point, and Matt Mervis will get his chance. But it's better not to go into the season and be like Nick Magical at third, Matt Mervis at first. We're done here. You know what I mean? I think sounds very similar to what the Cardinals did, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, kind of spread it around a little bit more than than go for the biggest name left out there. It's such a strange division right now. Again, other, other te- the Brewers are among the teams, I think, that are impacted by the Bally situation where it's led to a little bit of uncertainty about how much they can push toward their previous maxes. And their previous maxes are relatively low, especially compared to the Cubs and Cardinals for, for spending purposes. I think if you look at the Cubs and you say they don't get at least one of Matt Chapman and Reese Hoskins, they're they're missing something. I think they should bring back Cody Bellinger. Oh, so if you bring Hoskins. back Bellinger, Hoskins, Hoskins is better would be a great fit. I, I, yeah, I didn't I, I didn't think of that, but yeah, I think I think that would be good. If you bring back Bellinger, then you're probably not adding Hoskins most likely because you you know Bellinger with Pete Crow Armstrong coming up to the roster probably plays more first base than center field in the long run. So maybe that's a consideration. But you 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 have Morel at, at, at DH right now. If you sign Hoskins, you still have a chance for Mervis to hit his way onto the roster, right? And that, yeah. like something like Hoskins and Turner, I think might be able to fit. Although I am looking at Cots right now, and Cots says that they were at 148, 408, 184 million, eleventh in the in the league last year, and that they're already at 189 million this year. Yeah. So I, I guess I want to know what's going they could do a, a Joey Votto. I mean, he's a free agent. <laughs> oh, They've poached from the NL Central before. From, uh, yeah. Oh, it's They'll just steal from each team. Yeah. <laughs> miserable. It'd be miserable if they just take Joey something Votto from could, every could rock those unis, I think, for sure. I wonder where he's going to end up in all of this. I, I think the weird end to a like one career with one Jersey and Oh yeah. He was a cub for the last year. <laughs> he was a cub. I wonder could he DH in Toronto? I mean that the way that roster's built between Vlad, you know, two catchers and Jansen and Kirk. One of those guys. I just don't know DHs, how much somebody know. is going to give him in guaranteed money. And like, and like he's definitely not going to uh, take a, a minor league invite. So, yeah. There, there may just be like a point at which he's like, eh, that's good enough career. You know what I mean? I think it's multiple. Like what if somebody offers him $3 million? He's like, okay, for a whole season? It's, <laughs> at this point, though, <laughs> it, it, I wonder, so you think back to a couple of years ago when the Dodgers picked up Albert Pujols. Is there a, a top-end team that just has a roster spot available that would say, yeah, you're not going to play every day, but we're going to use you in a lot of key situations, and we, we value your presence in the clubhouse. And I guess Votto replacing Belt on that on that on Blue Jays roster is an interesting one. Yeah, it's not impossible. It's a little complicated because of of Kirk being there. If they believe Kirk's important to them, and they want to play Kirk and Jansen, that takes away a lot of playing time because you've already got Vlad locked in every day at first base. That's the that's the tricky part about Toronto right now. Not impossible, but just. Not ideal. I was wondering if it might be. Oof, could it be 
I mean, the Padres aren't really that team right now, but they did it with Nelson Cruz last year, and they could have a lot of playing time, a lot more playing time available than you'd expect on the infield, and, and cheap certainly fits what they need to try and do with any remaining additions they're going to bring to that roster. So there's a few places where it could uh, actually work out. Are we dismissing the rest of the division this easily, though? I mean, like the Reds, I think Katie said they're maybe an ace away, and they have a couple of guys that could step up, right? It's possible that Hunter Green stays healthy and is that guy. It's possible that Nick Dolo stays healthy and pitches more, more at least like a mid-rotation Green, I mean, if Green two. becomes a stud and Ashcraft becomes a middle-of-the-rotation guy, like maybe they have all that. You know, Monta, if Montas is healthy, like they, they're – they have guys there that like if they play to the top end of their possibilities and then they definitely have a great lineup. So yeah, we shouldn't, we, and, and they pushed towards it last year. They were respectable. They, they were, they were in it uh, for most of the year. So I think this division is wide open. If I, if I were a betting man, I might not bet on this division. <laughs> no, I, I really do think those three, the Cardinals, Reds and Cubs are going to duke it out for most of the season. But even the Pirates, no front runner. Remember how the Pirates started out last year? And yes. uh, they were they were decent, and then they lost O'Neill Cruz. And I, I don't want to put too much on one player. It's never about one player, but O'Neill Cruz is back. Um, you know, they made some hard decisions uh, around the lineup, and they've added some innings in in a similar way to the Cardinals. If you like, Marco Gonzalez uh, and Martin Perez are not super exciting. They're a little bit Lin esque, um, but it, they were having trouble putting like major league pitchers, starting pitchers, on the mound at the end of the season. And their Takoa Roby is Jared Jones. They have Paul Skeens coming. So, like, if their pitchers come along faster than people expect, uh, they could be better. I, I like honestly, I think the Cardinals uh, and the Brewers will be uh, fighting for this. But I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of those divisions where all five teams are in it near the end. Oh, perfect! So fun! Yay! Uh, I don't know. I, I like the Pirates. I was I was disappointed to read that Johan Oviedo is going under Tommy John surgery because it looked like he'd started to figure some things out. Um, I would I would think they're probably a year away from being like true go for it. But mm -hmm. I think when you're looking at the NL Central, the the Cardinals should and the Cubs should feel a little nervous their front offices because the Reds and the Pirates have some really exciting young talent, and uh, that young talent is knocking on the door. Some of it's already here. Yeah. Okay, fine. You you pushed me. You guys have all pushed me long enough. Nobody said anything about the Brewers. <laughs> no one said about the Brewers. <laughs> so the Brewers throw a big pile of money at Jackson Churio. We're probably going to see him on opening day as a result of that. So you know the most exciting prospect in their system comes through and becomes part of the roster. We know prospects are frequently underprojected. Yes, it doesn't always all happen right away, but I think this is more of a this is one of the best impact prospects the brewers have ever had in my lifetime so i'm i'm of the belief that he'll at least be decent from the from the very beginning and then probably get become good very fast they had garrett mitchell show some stuff he got hurt missed most of last season he's healthy again willie adamas should bounce back right they're a great defensive team they didn't trade yeah. corbin burns at least not yet they've added to that bullpen from within i think there's a couple guys there between abner uribe and Trevor McGill, who are just filthy. If you haven't seen them, they're part of that bridge to Devin Williams. So their last three relievers should be really good. And they've got a couple middle relievers like you know, Hobie Milner and Piamps, who are, are pretty solid. They have that organizational ability to identify relievers, Jeez. plug them in, and get good results. I think where you start to you see this roster breakdown is 
secondary bats? That's a question. It's been a question for a few years. Sal Freelich, really, Joey Weimer, Bryce Turang, Alex, uh, what's, I forget his first name, Monasterio. Andrew um, Monasterio. Monasterio, a, a lot of gloves there. I, I think, yeah. I think Tyler Black is kind of an important, kind of a sleeper in the same way that Victor Scott is kind of an interesting player for the Cardinals this year where we would expect to see him at least at some point. We're going to see Tyler Black. Probably going to see a lot of Tyler Black because Monasterio is more of a utility player. And I don't think you can have more than Bryce Terang as an everyday fixture in that lineup who's all glove and very little bat. He's a great defensive second baseman. I just don't know if he's ever going to hit enough to be even a average offensive player that's fine you can live with some players like that in your lineup run prevention is an important part of what they do so it breaks down a little bit with those secondary bats i i'm not convinced they're done whether that's bringing carlos santana back or maybe they're the team that goes out and gets reese hoskins i think one bat in free agency is possible for them solaire like nobody seems excited about solaire yeah the defensive limitations would be a but that's such a great defensive team you know like I just, it's, I'm just being in terms of how it cramps up the roster. Like you've got yeah. all these young outfielders. If you want to take wear and tear off of Christian Yelich, you want to leave DH open. If you add, so you think Slayer, like Justin Turner would be a better, better mix. Someone that can play in the infield is a better fit for the roster. Given they the also have problems with the back end of their starting rotation. That's the other spot where you look. It's behind behind Burns and Peralta. Wade Miley back to chew up innings. Aaron Ashby, just the major question well, mark health wise. So, at Fangrass, it's Colin Ray and Robert Gasser, and Robert Gasser's never pitched in the major leagues. Right. And they've got Joe Ross trying to make a big comeback. He's on the depth chart right now. So, oh, Joe I, Ross. Where's Eric Lauer on that list? He kind of fell Long off last year, right? Gone. Right. Yeah. He's gone. Long gone. I don't, I don't even know if Eric Lauer latch on with anybody else yet. They should sign like Zach Greinke. <laughs> be weird a second stint in milwaukee for zach grinky i don't i don't know if i if i see that coming uh in all of this but uh, jacob Mizrowski, you know their, their best pitching prospect maybe we see some of him this year but this is this is the spot you know not having brandon woodruff there it's not a big three as it's built right now and that takes a lot away from them if you're built on pitching and defense you need three high quality starters and right now they only have two proven ones yeah and one I know a team that came in with two proven starters. It did not go well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so we've, we've seen it in this division. It doesn't work. doesn't really work anywhere. But uh, I don't know. Hopefully more to come from this division from these other teams. And then the Reds, just to get back to their their situation, I'm in on this team. I think they, they're really, really good. I think they can out-hit their flaws in pitching. And we've had a lot of conversations from the fantasy perspective about Ellie De La Cruz and, and whether or not he's going to deliver in 2024. doesn't matter as much from a real-life perspective. I think he's a good enough defender. You just let him play it short. You let him figure things out at the plate. And more likely than not, those tools are going to come through sooner rather than later. And he doesn't have to be the guy because Matt McClain came up and had success last year. Christian Carnacion Strand got going. Spencer Steer was a pleasant surprise. Jonathan India hasn't been traded yet. So it's not like the weight of the entire offense rests on Ellie De La Cruz's shoulder. Novi Marte is part of the equation here, too. Like they just got a lot of young hitters that are popping all kind of at the right time. Yeah, it's a it's a it's all on their arms, you know. I think that I would have liked them to get a veteran uh that they could depend on a little bit more than Montas. I think that might have been uh, a good idea, but um, I'm revising my my stance. 
I think it'll be the Reds, Cardinals, and Cubs fighting. I think the Brewers are going to fall back. We've been looking at these rosters. The Brewers are going to fall back, and the Pirates need another year. That's how I'm going to I'm going to call it. All right, three way race. Your thoughts? Not favorite. including the Brewers. Sorry, dude. <laughs> okay. It's fine. Uh, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. Reds, Cardinals, and then if the Cubs can make a couple, whether that's their big addition or I, I like the spreading out uh, theory much better, then they're right up there too. I think it's going to be a three-way race, so we'll see. I have way too much faith in the front office adding Reese Hoskins to this Brewers lineup. That's that's the problem for me right now. I, I just I assume they're going to do it, and if they don't, it, one player never makes that much of an impact, but you have to show show me something. Show me that you are pushing a few more chips in while you still have this core in place. Don't make this a soft rebuild because everybody else in the division is getting better. That is the problem the Brewers are running into right now in a big way. Uh, We are going to go on our way out the door. Just a quick reminder, you can sign up for The Athletic. It's $2 a month for the first year at theathletic.com slash baseball show. And again, if you listen to us on a platform that allows you to rate and review the podcast, drop us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of The Athletic Baseball Show. We are back with you next week. I always got the green light here. Green light. 